Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that it is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and all the amazing ideas that you have in your head. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. You should try Squarespace at squarespace.com, and if you enter the code WORDS, W-O-R-D-S, at checkout, you get 10% off, and it helps support the show. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Creative Live. Visit creativelive.com backslash audio to learn from the best people in these respective fields, songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. If you want to learn anything about that stuff, you go there. creativelive.com backslash audio. Now on with the program. everybody to another episode of 100 words or less the podcast i am your host ray harkins you are the listener thank you for joining us we are continuing in our record label month series and it, it's actually bled over a little bit i apologize was supposed to fit all of these episodes into july but then you know what i took a week off summertime it happens so i'm very excited to bring you a conversation i had with mr jake round the ceo proprietor owner whatever you like to call it of pure noise records but before we do that, I want to bring to you a conversation I had with our producer, Tom Richfield. So he is from the United Kingdom, and he went on tour with a friend's band filling in on guitar in Europe. And it was one of those things, I was watching his social media posts as he was going through this tour, and I had an idea, because I think a lot of people that listen to this show don't have a true sense of touring in general you know like they see their band their favorite bands come through and it's a cool thing and yeah you get an idea of like oh yeah smelly vans or if you're a more successful band you obviously tour in a bus but anyways tom i think had a very unique experience um just in regards to being on tour in europe on a relatively small tour and being very very well taken care of just because that's how they do things over in europe so i thought we'd bring you this this very in my mind entertaining discussion that will hopefully paint a clear picture for you of what touring life is like over in europe and i will interject some of the united states tour stories as well so here's my conversation with tom richfield after that i'll do a little intro for jake then we'll hop into the interview, and then we're off and running. So here you go. Here's a little bonus thing at the front of this episode. We're here to talk about your... Is it Was this your first tour experience? Like, I guess, kind of larger scale tour? Uh, no, no. I used to be like uh, in another not very great hardcore bands that played a couple of European tours as well. Got it, got it. Okay, for some reason I thought this was, like I knew you had toured, but not to maybe like, because you were gone for, what, three weeks? Just under two, give or take. So that you would not define this as your most extensive tour overseas. Or, or, or yeah, I guess technically overseas, because you are going to Europe, but... <laughs> exactly, yeah. Although I haven't said that, it takes like technically like 
two and a half hours to get from my house to Europe. <laughs> right. You took a ferry or do you fly? Like, excuse my ignorance, but... Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, exactly that. We uh, we took a ferry from like Dover, which is the southeast of England, to Calais, which is like the north of France. And then it's all driving from there. I got it. You And you were filling in with, of course, Plug the Band. And what, what was the tour? Sure thing. Uh, so I was filling in on guitar for a band called Deadweight from the UK, who are not to be confused with a Deadweight from the US, which has got members of Champion and Sinking Ships, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Deadweight from St. Albans, uh, like north of London, kind of sounds like like hate breeds, but with, you know, like entombed harm's way guitar tone, etc. I'm sure everybody can picture that pretty well. Right. Uh, basically, you were you were filling on a guitar, correct? That's right. Yeah. What I found so interesting and obviously why I wanted to discuss with you your, your touring experience was just kind of the... Um, I don't know. It seemed like the experience that you were having was not only fun because obviously it was just kind of a, you know, two week vacation for you in a way. Exactly. Yeah. But um, you were you were surprised at a lot of things, I guess, that had maybe changed since the last time you toured as far as like maybe the way that the band was treated or maybe how the shows were better. I don't know. Explain to me what was going through your head as you were kind of experiencing the tour as it was going along. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, although it's obviously the kind of same genre of music we have obviously in the UK and we were supporting the American band Hardside, the kind of culture of like shows and hardcore in mainland Europe is just wildly different to the UK and judging from the comments of the guys on the hard side like to the US as well so like, the average kind of experience if you were a touring band in the UK is you go to play a show you get paid if at all you maybe like pay like 50 pounds like to travel up to a few hours at a time uh, you won't get any food or any drink or anything like that and afterwards you're just expected to drive back the same night whereas without exception every single one of the European shows everybody got paid in full there was no kind of discrepancy about like how many people turned up at the door or anything like that. There was food available, like vegan food as well. Not that any of us, bar one, were vegan, but the the kind of thought was nice that they'd actually uh, accommodate that kind of thing as well. Every single place, the promoter would either give us a place to stay, like either at a hostel or in the roadhouse, or really like mind-blowing things. A lot of the venues actually had like band departments built in, and it wasn't kind of like an anarchist squat. It's actually like really tasteful, like nice furniture, like electricity, running water, like hot showers. Like, so mm-hmm. that kind of thing is just totally alien to what you experience in the UK and from what I gather from the guides on the hard sides from the US as well. I think some of it's down to like a lot of the places the government will actually kind of fund local like youth centers and promoters actually to kind of like enrich the culture and bring in like overseas art and stuff like that while they're calling. What we do art is pretty generous. <laughs> That's, I think, how they managed to do a lot of it without going like massively to their own pockets. Is just they actually get like uh, subsidies from the government to do it. As like both like us and Hardside were just like really taken aback by how good that was. Right. Yeah. Because it is always that notion too, where I'm sure like every spot that you turned up that had, like you said, all those accommodations and food and all of these things, it was like, why are you doing this for us? Like we're two really small, terrible hardcore bands. Like there are plenty of other people you can spend money on, and this isn't it. Oh, absolutely. I mean. To be honest, like the turnout at quite a few of the shows was was pretty bad. So no doubt, even if they weren't receiving like government funding, they would have gone into their own pockets to pay for that as well. But none of the promoters, like even their general attitude, they were like really hospitable and welcome. They weren't bitter or anything like that, or taking like making like backhanded comments about us not drawing enough people or anything like that. They were actually just good, pleasant people to be around. Right, right. What um, I guess what countries did you play that you noticed the kind of you know sort of subsidy program, or was that something that you just kind of like through conjecture you figured out, or did the actual promoters kind of you know as they were hanging out with you express that? 
Uh, a couple of promoters just kind of kind of mentioned it as well. It's kind of a double-edged sword because in Germany, I know for sure, the promoters sort of have to pay royalties for songs you play as well. So like we had to fill out forms about like our set list and if we were like playing a cover, we'd have to report it and then the bands who we covered would actually get royalties, which is pretty funny because one of the shows, I think five different bands played Redneck Stump by Obituary. So they're probably getting a half decent royalty check at the moment as well. <laughs> That's funny. Obviously, there. I mean, here in the United States, there are um, you know performance uh, royalty programs that monitor major venues and stuff like that. But I imagine yeah, yeah. that 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 some of those places like I, i've never played a show in the states where they had you like fill out your set list you know yeah. like that that's pretty uh but again that kind of speaks to german culture in general where it's like crossing the t's and dotting the i's you go to germany you expect a little bureaucracy right <laughs> totally you got to push a lot of paperwork over there and so yeah I, I do find the subsidy program so interesting just because it's i mean there are uh, there are programs that exist like that in the uk but it's not very pervasive correct yeah like uh you'll, you'll get youth centers and that kind of thing that'll put on like occasional like, one day festival thing but the budget for them is pretty minimal as far as i can tell you never tend yeah. to get like international acts or anything like that it'll just be whatever other band was generous enough to come down and play for 30 pounds you can extrapolate that to where that that doesn't even exist in the united states where it's like <laughs> yeah. you know obviously when you're seeing high school music programs being cut out of schools and mm. <laughs> that is very low on the priority list and so that's what i've always you know when i first started to become extremely interested in like the you know scandinavian black metal scene and you know death metal and all those people when I say those people, like those people that are creating the music can subsist on like the grants and the subsidies. And it just blows my mind where it's just like, you know, here's Fenris from Dark Throne, just kind of, (laughs) he hasn't had to have a job in like 20 plus years because he's not only prolific and talented enough to do what he does, but then just be like, oh yeah, I make, you know, whatever, a hundred chronos or a hundred euros or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In the UK, if uh, like a tabloid newspaper were to catch on like a band of that kind of ilk was being paid for by the taxpayer like people would go fucking crazy like on the podcast you had chris from kirsten burning love talking about how the canadian government either like loaned or partially paid for them to record a few of their albums as well which is fucking crazy it blows my mind there was actually i had an experience with that when uh i was dealing with a band i had project managed this they were from winnipeg manitoba they basically they had a sound that was kind of akin to i don't know how water music meets dag nasty so whatever yeah, yeah. for whatever reason the singer is, is i still keep in touch with and is a great guy but it was like this band was not destined for any large stardom but for whatever reason the singer was able to write these amazing grants and like no joke i think for one particular record that i worked with them they did like three massively large budget music videos and i'm not talking about like oh ten thousand dollars these were like sixty to seventy thousand dollars of videos that were we as the label didn't have to pay anything for and they just got it all funded. Basically, it's like they told us they were shooting a video. And I was like, wow, okay, cool. And they sent me a treatment. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's like dollies and like <laughs> there's like so much. Yeah. And then they just turned in this music video that was like, dude, this is like the budgets of, you know, 1980s hair metal bands. Like it was <laughs> unbelievable. And I'm like, this band is really irrelevant everywhere and yet you're still investing in it it's just i don't know it was just such an interesting world to watch this you know canada as far as being able to support their bands and support the arts and it still obviously exists and they still are able to do it it's just it's i guess i'm envious more than anything else oh yeah i'm like you guys should just be signing like canadian bands exclusively if you're more frugal right (laughs) 
<laughs> no, totally. And it, it it's weird too because there's definitely like multiple layers of obviously getting into know the right people, being able to understand writing grants. And it's like there's mm. some bands that have existed, you know, uh, whatever a band like Silverstein. Only in the past like two years have they started trying to tap into that system. Whereas like other bands that have existed for years and years and years, you know, like Alexis on Fire, it's like they got in pretty relatively early to that program, and it's just like <laughs> it, it's so. unbelievable how much they're able to to get where it's like hey we're gonna do a tour of the the states and we're gonna be about twenty thousand dollars in the hole and they're like all right cool well, here's a twenty thousand dollar check like have fun <laughs> with your tour experience was there any other things that were kind of like revelatory to you that was like oh my gosh i can't believe that this is like this whether it was a particular show or a tour in general we, I'd, I'd picked up on it like the first couple times i toured europe as well but especially in summertime but when you're touring like mainland europe like the first day or two you'll just like have your mind blown by like how breathtakingly beautiful everywhere you look is so you'll just be doing like a seven hour drive and just you just peer out the window like you'll just see beautiful like sweeping landscapes and countryside and mountains and everything like that it tends to like oversaturate you at points so like uh, like a week or so into it we were in vienna and by that point i was just bored at looking at like beautiful like eye-wateringly like nice like architecture and stuff like that just because you've been like so used to it you almost like want to fucking like hit yourself for being like such a spoiled little prick but yeah you just get like overwhelmed with how beautiful it is but like you, you grow pretty used to it and like it kind of becomes numb to you almost right you become desensitized by it. it's like oh wow here's another 700 year old building like, exactly great. like if you're like touring in the uk all you're gonna see is just like dull completely characterless motorways for the vast majority of it <laughs> yeah it is it is funny too where uh, people that i mean such as yourself who obviously you've traveled to california a few times now and it, obviously california is beautiful a lot of people envy the lifestyle that happens out here and but then when push comes to shove there's so many places where you're just like well yeah but we don't have a history like you can't point i mean yeah you can point to things that are 150 maybe 200 years old and like that's cool but then there's nothing that like you said that's more breathtaking than being like oh my gosh here's this thing that's centuries old and i'm standing right in front of it and it still exists and it's oh, absolutely. like we um yeah. we went to a place called Berchtesgaden, garden like we uh which is basically where hitley used to live so we uh we commemorated that by like driving up the hill listening to uh drake because I can't think of anything more that would spit in his face more than like a black Jew being successful. Sure, but yeah, that's it's perfect. just the thing. Yep, this is where Hitler lived. That's amazing. Yeah, you're like this is just going to uh, to to spite you, uh, yeah. regardless of of where you're sitting now. We can all imagine probably he's not in a very good place at this point. And so the and like you mentioned too, like the shows in particular. What, what I guess what was the uh, some of the largest crowds that you played for? Like you know the the best shows. Yeah, um, it kind of varied because the the one that we played that probably had the best turnout was called Return to Strength Festival. So the, obviously the rule being that. Europe is always two years behind the UK, which is always two years behind the US. Beatdown is huge in Europe at the moment as well. So we were playing a fest like predominantly with kind of beatdown bands. Although the stuff we were playing is like relatively heavy. If it wasn't a kind of in the style of like Amur and all that kind of stuff, people weren't particularly interested. So we had a lot of people to pay to, but we uh, didn't go over too well then. But Kind of on the flip side, a couple of shows that we played, which was buried inside the side of a mountain in Austria. It was uh, to like maybe a 50 to 100 people. And a lot of them like weren't even necessarily hardcore bands. A couple of them were just like uh, people who had been like hiking up the mountain and heard us sound checking and thought that was rad and they came back and like pushed mosh to us, which was pretty fun. So that was really intimate, but that was better in that respect. And I'm sure you've had this experience many times where it's like the shows that you anticipate the most, like, you know, a festival, you'd be like, wow, this should be cool because we're playing, we're going to be playing to a lot of people. And then it ends up being 
you know, really disappointing, like you were saying, just because of, you know, various reasons. But then you're like, yeah, playing in a mountain to hikers was, was, was better than this communal event that is supposed to bring a bunch of bands and like-minded people together. And they're just like, ah, oh, not that interested. It was really anticlimactic that the last show of the tour, the only people to turn up was one person wearing a Soulfly t-shirt who I assume either attended the wrong concert or just walked in inebriated off the street and uh, a, a photographer who was friends with the promoter as well. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, that, you definitely want your, your last memory to just be like, oh, well, yeah, we played to two people. That was great. I, I guess at this point, obviously, where you're, you're standing in your life, would you would you ever want to tour the States? I guess maybe just obviously to have the experience, but like, you know, what sort of, um, I guess, notions do you have about uh, tour life just through obviously all the stories that you've uh, been keyed into? It, it would totally depend because, I mean, there's countless stories of bands who do incredibly well in the UK and going over to the US and just getting no response at all. I think you probably have to like reach a certain threshold where people would actually like give a shit about you to tour the US, the US and for it to be pleasant. It's wildly different from like the Europe in which you can, let's say, like the very left-hand side of France and the same day drive into Germany, whereas obviously the US is so like massively expansive that to do any kind of like real coverage of it would just be grueling in terms of like long drives and stuff. Like I've got um, friends in a band called Hidesites who like, went over and then um, and then just toured like the East Coast in a van, but obviously none of them could drive. So the other band that they had the entirety of uh, all the driving responsibilities and they were pretty miserable for it. But even though it's obviously a really cool thing to say that you've toured the US, like in reality, you're just playing to a lot of disinterested people and doing some pretty horrible drives in between. Especially too, where the you know bands that are, are from Europe and obviously are used to playing a certain type of show and then maybe go to a different territory and are just like completely shattered or they're just like what the shows are supposed to be like this I, I one of the most stressful times in my life was when um i was working with the band heaven shall burn uh <laughs> from from germany you know undisputably one of the largest bands from that sort of genre of music for you know in the mid-2000s they were just a powerhouse you know yeah yeah for years it's like you know they would their records would sell really well over here in the states it's like i remember the first uh record that i worked with them on was this record called antigone and it was like you know it was perfect for the time as far as just like metallic hardcore is concerned yeah yeah but it was um you know we i mean i think we sold like 20 25,000 copies of that thing and i was like what who is buying this like this is a vegan straight edge band from germany like why does <laughs> why do people in the states like you know i could see it selling 2,000 copies but not this many so anyways it just kind of kept motivating us to want them to come over here to the states no matter how much you prepare a person to get used to a different set of rules and reality it was like one of the most grueling things just because it was like they weren't used to this like they weren't used to playing in front of 200 people and it's not like they were complaining about the turnouts but they were just like oh my gosh like we've got a you know 12 hour drive like all those things that you're talking about mm. they just weren't prepared for and it, it was like just have it like honestly day after day of me talking to them being like but this is like, I, I really don't have any explanation besides, but this is just the way that it is. And it, was like, <laughs> it was so hard to just like break down those uh, expectations and, and barriers of what it was that they were used to versus what we're delivering to them as an audience. It was so, honestly, it was ultimately disheartening because it was just like, man, I last thing I want you guys to do is go back home and be like, oh yeah, we're never going to tour the States. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's that's what's happened. They've never toured the States again. <laughs> One and done. For, for the bands that, that go the DIY route and are just like, hey, we got like a six-week tour of the States. It's like, dude, if you're still a band after the end of that, like <laughs> more power to you. You guys, yeah. you guys are better people than most bands. 
I mean, that's that's one thing if it's like kind of done DIY, but I've got a friend who's doing guitar tech on Warped Tour at the moment and I expect him to be seeing like loads of beautiful exotic sites and that kind of stuff. But the reality is he's looking at different car parks with slightly varying like weather conditions. I think it is one thing that many, I mean, especially when you're younger in your teens uh, and you first start to grasp the idea of tour, uh, you don't think of the context of you're just seeing like a, you know, maybe like a two mile square radius of wherever mm. it is that you're playing. You know, I, I can think of a few cities that I've been to like five or six times and I'm like, well, yeah, I can tell you the cool coffee shop down the street from this terrible venue that we played. <laughs> but like, you know, it, it's if you're like looking for a historical context of like, oh yeah, I visited City Hall or this amazing library. It's like, I can't, I don't know. I never did that. Yeah, the chances are like the, the venue is not making enough money to be able to pay the rent in the most like beautiful place in the city. Totally. It's not going to be in the heart of downtown in the cultural district. It's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, unless you're making, you know, $20,000 a month in just rent. It's like, oh man, it's 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 brutal. And then yeah. it's funny because then it's, I've seen other, you know, people that have played music for a long time that have obviously matured into adults. They're like, wait a minute. So this is what it's like to like go to a place and like not have to play a show. It's like, oh yeah, that's called like vacation or traveling. <laughs> They're like, oh yeah, that's that's right. I guess you could do that when you're an adult. Like you you, you don't have to go to a place and be out of there in twelve hours. We 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 sort of fucked up on one of these. We had one of the shows we were playing Paris. We got there. We stayed at the hotel the night beforehand. We got up really early and spent like the whole day sightseeing. But we didn't account for um, how long it would take to go back, get the van, drive it to the venue and load in everything. Probably we, we easily could have like played the show like if we just had quick changeovers and that's so the venue owner forced the promoter to cancel the show, even though like all the bands were there. All the gear was like 10 minutes away and like there was like kids there were actually in attendance already as well it was kind of a bummer. But yeah, you yeah. definitely have to choose between either seeing the city you're in or being organized and like getting everything prepared properly. Right, like sh showing up at load-in. <laughs> no, that's true. It is It is so sad that you have to make those decisions. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, should we, uh, you know, soak in the sights and see something beautiful? Or um, should we just spend, you know, four hours loading in and then waiting around and then trying to figure out what is what is a place that we can kill time at <laughs> yeah trying to like beg somebody for a wi-fi password like i said it, it intrigued me and i think it is interesting for people that just don't uh don't think about uh playing outside of their particular country or having that experience of like oh wow like bands and people are treated differently in different countries <laughs> oh on that kind of topic i would absolutely encourage anybody in the uk to do it because the barrier for entry for tour of europe is so fucking low you my first band the entirety of our like discography was one song that we had on MySpace. We managed to do like a ten day tour of Europe and come out like profitable as well. <laughs> okay, this is, you just blew my mind right there. So you, <laughs> you you had one song and you booked a ten day European tour and you didn't like die financially. Exactly. I, it was a good song, but like not enough that we should have been able to carry the whole tour on our backs on it. Right, right. The, the, the MySpace MP3 boom of being like, oh man, look how many plays I got today. I okay, think we good. managed to book the entire tour for MySpace as well, which is impressive in its own right. That's completely impressive. Wow. Uh, hats off to you. I'm glad that you've had multiple experiences in uh, filling in for a band. And then, so you've probably, how many songs have you created to tour Europe? Uh, <laughs> the second tour, we were uploading the EP like at people's houses that we just uh, recorded which sounded terrible okay. and then this one like it was actually for a band who had like a few eps under the belt so it was actually something for people to listen to beforehand 
Okay, got it, got it. Because I would have just loved to have this notion that you, for whatever reason, like were able to tour Europe, uh, you know, like four or five times on just like one song, and then now you got to tour again <laughs> on songs that you didn't even write. It's like <laughs> exactly like it's minimal effort involved, and you get to see like one of the some of the world's coolest sites. That's uh, that's awesome. Well, I I keep hoping that you get to have that experience more and more. <laughs> So yeah, hopefully that was enlightening for you to hear a perspective on what it's like to tour because touring is such a weird thing. No matter where you're doing it, it's always incredibly unique. I think Tom's experience was very indicative of that. Like I said, Jake Round is on the show. Pure Noise Records is a force to be reckoned with. I've known Jake for a long time. I've wanted him on the show for a while. And then I figured, what better time than the present? So here's my discussion with Jake and I will talk to you at the very end of the episode. quite some time but i can't recall like obviously where we first ran across each other but i remember vividly hanging out at that uh hellfish swap meet (laughs) whenever that was that was in like what maybe 2009 2008 maybe it had to be nine or ten when i first met you you were still working for century media uh it was when i was working at ant magazine Uh uh-huh and so i would occasionally email you about press stuff and I remember at the time, Century was trying to get into more hardcore stuff, and they had Terror and Stick, and I think you were you were sort of maybe involved in the A&R side of that. And I was really excited about those bands, and you know, I was kind of playing in a band myself at the time, so I was that was based in Southern California, even though I was living in Northern California, so I was around a lot. But I definitely remember that that swap meet. I I thought that swap meet was so cool. I, I don't know why we never did it again. No, I definitely enjoyed it too. I think, yeah, no, I remember you from from emailing, obviously, like you said, around the, the time that uh, I was at Century Media. The swap meet experience was just, it was really fun, even though it was obviously really small, you know, like whatever, I'd say maybe what, 60, 70 kids came throughout the whole day, but it was just such a fun vibe to be able to obviously hang out with everybody and, you know, sell a few records here and there, but it was, yeah, I I, I definitely I definitely remember how much fun that was. I bought it. How- heart seven inch from you i 100 percent remember it <laughs> 20 dollars, and i was pumped i know you're still you're still pumped you got it i, I hope. still i still have it 100 percent still have it <laughs> but i i remember the um it, it's funny because you uh, the, the impression that i got of you um was very genuine like i liked you it was one of those things where it's like clearly there was much to be gained from your perspective in either, uh, you know, whatever, knowing me, knowing what I could potentially do for you, like you were talking about where it's like, oh, wow, maybe I can get my band on Century Media or whatever. But I never felt that sort of, um, you know, you meet people who are like, oh, man, I want to know Jake from Pure Noise because then he'll maybe sign my band or whatever, those sort of aspirational friendships. Um, but I, I never got that from you. I think was- that's a, a really, I was literally, I right before I came here, I was, meeting a guy who does promotion for Columbia records who just moved into the, to the area who was just like a suggested meetup from uh, a big wig at Sony. Who's taken an interest in me since we uh, did a distribution deal there. And it was actually, it was, it was sort of one of those types of that you're talking about where you meet up with someone and you're like, 
you know, maybe this guy can introduce me to so-and-so or something. And, and that's definitely part of the music business, I think. It's sometimes a negative part. But there's those people out there. I think there's more so in the punk rock community where it's like, yeah, sure, we can all help each other out. But it's the in the way that you approach it. Like you can't, you know, I think there's a lot of people in the music business that are overly opportunistic. And it's kind of like it gives you a bad taste a little bit, you know. That's a very appropriate word, opportunistic, because they're, you know, every time you, you start to throw around the words, you know, networking and uh, power meetings and whatever, all the stupid cliches that you can put on <laughs> the the world of doing business. But then it, it, to me, it's like just about peeling it away to where it's just like, well, ultimately, you should care about the other human that's on the other side of this thing, because if you figure out their quote unquote desires or what they need and how you can help them, you're, they're going to in turn help you. It's just going to benefit one another in the long run. Well, right. That's the thing is like we can, where it's, they call it like a, a scene or a community for a reason. Like you can't, nobody can do anything all on their own. So it's like, there's, there's just a, there's a right way and a, and a wrong way to do that sort of thing. And I feel like some people are, you know, a little better about it than others. And something that really, that, I tried to like impress upon myself when I was starting the label and I was definitely a very fierce when I, when I first started the label, like I was, I hated it when people didn't respond to my emails and I was like, you know, fuck these people who don't take me seriously. They're going to take me seriously one day. And, and, you know, now that we've had a little bit of success, I, have a little bit more perspective on, you know, maybe some of those people were busy. Maybe they weren't just blowing me off. But when, when you're young and sort of starting out, you're a little more like tenacious about it. But I think something for me that was, that I really still try to do to this day is like, I try to respond to as many emails as possible. And if a demo makes it all the way to my email, like if, it, if, if somebody manages to circumvent the demo collection system, then I make a point to listen to everything that makes it to me regardless. And even just recently I had one come through from a a manager that I didn't recognize the name and I was about to delete it. And I was like, no, I don't do that. And I pressed play and now I'm halfway into signing the band. So there you go. Like, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's hard when you're starting out to sort of get people to pay attention to you. And I think it's been one good thing. One thing that I like about myself is I try to give other people, you know, as much of my time as I can. No, I see that. And it, it's funny that you, uh, you bring up the, you know, whatever chip on your shoulder, you know, fierce competitor, well, not fierce competitor, but the fierceness. Cause I definitely did get that, um, impression of you where it was like, you know, I, because I knew you, I took you seriously because you had, you know, proven yourself to be a, uh, you know, reputable person into it for the right reasons or whatever. So I, I needed no convincing, but I definitely saw that in the context of the larger world where it was like, no, pure noise is a thing. Like I promise I'm, I'm wanting to put out quality music and I, I could tell people didn't view what you did as legitimate. Um, so you did, you know, I, I could see why it you took walk- some years, you know? Yeah. Right. I mean, it still takes, it's, you know, we've, I remember when I was first starting out, I was like, you know, there's my, my main general goal was to put out some records that like, that I thought that people would talk about for a long time, because I knew if we just put out really great stuff, uh, the sales side of it would take care of itself. But there's a, a few benchmarks that I really wanted to hit. And like, I really wanted to like have a band play the main stage of the warp tour, like a punk rock band, one of my bands and uh, a, you know, a band that I believed in. And then 
and also uh, have a punk rock band sell 50,000 records again, because I, I was at, you know, when I was starting the label, I did all these warp tours uh, working for rise records at the time. And at the time warp tour was very heavy and, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to say that I'm cooler or better than anyone else. Cause I'm definitely neither of those things cool or better, but I was just like, not, I didn't dig the vibe at the time of the bands that were really popular. And I was like, well, maybe we could make something that is a little cooler. It has a little, uh, you know, a message that I like better. I'm not saying that mine's necessarily better or worse, but like something that was more akin to like the punk rock scene that I was a part of in the late nineties where, you know, there was these, there was big punk bands. That was a thing. And I felt like for a while that wasn't really a thing. And, you know, get, achieving those things has been great, but then you, there's still like, here I am six years in and I, it took me six years to even get in the door at my local radio station, you know? So it's like you, you check one thing off the list. There's always someone, someone else that doesn't want to let you in. So it's, I think it's kind of important to not get too caught up on, on those things. All you can do is really like the best you can do with, with what you got and, and try to like, you know, be the best representative for the bands that you can be mm-hmm. with no, the, with the resources you got. Totally. It's, a, it's an important point. Um, I'm going to back things up because we'll obviously get to uh, a few places within the pure noise universe as it were, but you yourself, were you, you were born in, in Southern California, correct? Like down by in Orange County, like the, uh, I was actually, I'm from the 909 was born in Upland and I lived in the Inland Valley my whole young adult life. I went to Chino High School, and then I went to a small private college called the University of Laverne, which is right there next to Pomona, just uh, sort of north of the Glasshouse area, uh, if anybody's familiar with the Southern California venues. but um, And I moved to the Bay Area right before my 23rd birthday. So I've been in the Bay nine and a half years now. I'm 32. Okay, got it. Yeah, because I, I thought that you had been raised down here. So, what was your uh, what was your family structure like growing up? Like mom and dad in the house, brothers and sisters. Uh, I have one younger sister who's twenty eight. She's about to get married, and she still lives in Southern California, uh, right near my mother. And my parents were married for thirty plus years. My dad died about six years ago, very suddenly, while my parents were on vacation of a heart attack. Um, I had. One thing that was very interesting about my upbringing was that um, uh, my father was non-religious and my mother was Mormon. So I grew up Mormon, sort of, mostly. <laughs> right. Which is very unusual. Like, <laughs> the, you know, I'm totally, I'm, I'm an atheist at this point. I'm not into religion at all. Um, but uh, at, growing up, you know, most of the Mormon kids that I was sort of like around a lot because of church, they they had completely Mormon families and their household structures were a little more rigid than mine. And conversely, my house was much more rigid than my friends whose families were non-religious or even like less uh, less strict religions. And so um, it was it was definitely kind of an interesting vibe trying to like navigate being Mormon, especially when I got into punk rock music, uh, it was, there was, you know, one of my favorite bands growing up was Propagandi and very outspokenly anti, uh, established religions and was kind of those bands to me were sort of 
in a way life-changing because those were the first time I heard like my value structure questioned a little bit. And it was, it was, it was interesting. Yeah. No, there's, there's a lot wrapped up in that, but I'll hit the the last part of what you were saying right there. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I can completely identify with what you're talking about as well in regards to the moment that a band is presented to you or not even a band, but just a certain philosophical strain or thought that gets thrown inside of you and you're just like oh wait everything isn't okay i can think a different way <laughs> and like that's exactly I, I i was the same right well i mean i also grew up my parents were very conservative republican and i remember like you know getting into college and i i sort of like i felt like my dad was too smart to be wrong and it's funny that i say that because i fought my father like it was world war three but I, th- I had like this like respect for his intelligence and then i got to to college and i was like Oh, nope, actually, yep, he's full-blown wrong. Yep, God, just not, I'm not, not, not into this. Still love my parents, but just disagree with a lot of their, their, their politics and their, and their views on life. And it's funny because as over time, I've seen them even change their own opinions. And I think if you, uh, something that any, uh, intelligent, intelligent person does over time is their opinions evolve with the, you know, the experiences that they have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so when you're, uh, obviously, like you said, your, your father passed away, well, pretty much around the same time as you starting the label. So my dad passed away. Um, I think it was a seven year anniversary this year, six year anniversary, Mm -hmm. seven year. Um, cause it was the year around, it was close to the same time I started the label. I started the label maybe six months afterward or maybe a year afterward. Um, right around the same time my dad died, uh, I got an internship at fat records and 2008 was the worst year of my life. It was like my dad died. Uh, I had been student teaching cause I was working on becoming a high school teacher. Uh, I got, I couldn't get enough hours scheduled to fulfill my requirements. So I ended up having to like drop out of this program that I had taken thousands of dollars in student loans out for. And I wasn't gonna be able to be a teacher the following year, which, I was, you know, getting to the point in my life where I wanted to have like a career. And so here I am, all that's going on. And I randomly stumble into this internship at FAT through a random person that I had met through refereeing ice hockey of all things. Her husband was friends with the label manager at FAT. And I was like, man, I would do anything to intern there. So I started interning at FAT. And from there I got a job at that magazine. And this was all within, you know, give or take on either side of my dad dying by about six months. And I started the label maybe, you know, six started things in motion about six months after my dad died and put the record out maybe a year or so after. And to be, it's a weird thing to think about or talk about, but I'm not sure if I would have been able to start my own business had my dad not died, which is very weird. That couldn't have led to the question I was going to ask you because I, I mean, I also, my father passed away, uh, I think six years ago, I think we experienced that loss around the same time. And what I took from that, I mean, that honestly spurned me on to have the child that I have right now. And so I was going to ask you what, what things I guess did you either do or kind of you know you reacted to his uh, his passing with the, obviously all of the the things that you were just mentioning right there. I'm kind of a, a worker, and my dad sort of just drove that into me as a kid. And I've kind of always used just being busy to deal with whatever part of it of my life I didn't really like. You know, as a kid, I 
uh, or as a teenager, I always felt awkward. I was, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a bigger guy. I thought it was fat. I, you know, I had body issues. So what I would do to deal with it is I would just, anything I didn't like, I would just get busy. I, would, I played football. I played in a, in a punk rock band. I went to shows on the weekend. Like I was always doing something and I was always happier that way. So when my dad died, I had the idea to start this label. I had some friends in, in a band in Southern California called No Bragging Rights who needed some help. And I thought they were a great band. So I borrowed some money from my mother who probably, I probably wouldn't have been able to get that loan if my father would have been alive, to be perfectly honest. And I just like, sort of like put all of my time and I was still playing music at the time. And so I was like either playing in a band or doing my label or, or at work or, you know, working a night job so I could, have, could afford to do all these other things. So that that's, that's one thing that uh, I would imagine a lot of people don't really know is like in the first two or three years, I had two other jobs on top of doing the label just to like, that was like normal. I had the day job, the night job and the label. It was just how it was. Granted, there was a lot less to do for the label at that time, but it was still, it was a lot of hours. Right. You, you, you were just putting in the sweat. I don't even think I could do it anymore. Sure. Well, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely a time and a place for that, you know, kind of going back to once you started to, you know, like you said, go to high school and, and, and develop your identity and kind of figure out how to navigate within your, uh, you know, religious slash non-religious household. Um, what kind of kid did you find yourself being? Were you gravitating towards sports or were you uh, had music consumed you by that point once you got to high school? I feel like I've always kind of been. I mean, I'm definitely a little jock bro-ish even till this day, like more so than most of like the punk kids that I was, I was definitely kind of into bro punk in high school. And I didn't realize that's what it was at the time, but you know, I don't know that everyone would would love that genre term, but it it is what it is. And so in high school, I was kind of like a little bit of a, of like a, a chameleon, so to speak, because I would. I was super into playing football and I played football in, in co- college as well, but I was also really into uh, like fat records and epitaph bands and even some stuff that was like a little more oi than that. Like I always thought of it as like street punk, like, you know, total chaos and, and uh, the business and stuff like that, which some of my f- friends were, were really into. It was never my favorite stuff, but I would sometimes go to those shows and so I was sort of the guy that was like, I'd be walking out to lunch with like my Letterman's jacket on. And there'd be like the group of like, you know, crust punk kids with the butt flaps, like, and, and back patches. And I'd be like, yo, you going to dropkick Murphy show this weekend? They'd be like, yeah, all right, I'll see you there. Kind of a vibe. So I was really into both. And it was sort of almost in a lot of times, uh, there was, there was different points where I kind of had to pick and choose between the two and it made me uncomfortable. I was like, well, why just because I play sports, can I not do these other things? And why? Cause I can't, you know what I mean? The, the culture doesn't always align for people like, you know, those, those groups aren't, you know, historically best friends. So it was, it was, it was sometimes tough for me, but at the same time, not tough. Cause I just liked them and I still like them. I mean, I have season tickets to the Raiders to this day. Like I'm, I'm kind of a believer that you can be what into whatever you're into. You know, right. So, they don't have to, these worlds don't have to be mutually exclusive. Right. And I feel like you, you something you, you definitely learn that the older that you get, but it, even still it's, it's hard. Like sometimes for me, I feel like I get so ingrained in like music stuff, like 
one of my my roommate in San Francisco is a booking agent at Hyrule Touring. My best best friend in the city is a promoter for Live Nation, and you know, and in a way, like you know, being into sports and stuff like that is like sort of a outlet to like normal people things. You know, it's like to do something just a little bit more like mainstream or you know, like that every, everybody's kind of into is I think it's good and it's it's healthy to kind of get away from your little world and get outside your comfort zone because you kind of like you develop these norms that are sort of self-created if you're always in your own bubble. No, because there are so few, I guess, communal shared experiences beyond obviously sports where it's like because that's the only thing that really happens on a you know, live basis that people have to tune into on a, you know, a certain time and then experience it. And it's like, there are very few instances, like, you know, you obviously could have the water cooler talk about, uh, whatever Sunday night game of Thrones episode, but that's still a small portion of the world. But yeah, you need something that you can connect yourself to a larger, uh, a larger base as it were. And so then, uh, I wanted to also hit on the, the, the fact that you, uh, you worked at uh, Rasputin's for how many years did you work at that record store? Only about a year, but that was actually a really great job for me because I had worked for Ant magazine for two years and and I went on Warp Tour that summer to work for Rise Records. And the story so far's first LP had just come out, Under Soil and Dirt. And I kind of quit AMP, took the summer job on Warp Tour. And I was 27, I think, at the time. And uh, the owner of Rise, Craig Erickson, who's been very influential on me, has been very much a mentor at times, was like, hey, you can do the Warp Tour for me and you can sell your CDs from my table. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, it's no big deal. So I went out there and I had a few CDs to sell and, and the story record had just come out and it had really started to pick up, especially in comparison to anything else I'd ever released. And I was like, wow, this is like, it really feels like a thing. I need to get home. And I remember like having to reorder CDs while I was out on Warp Tour and um, people were definitely, definitely reacting to it. And I came home and I needed a job because I had stopped working for AMP and I got the job at, at, at Rasputin's. And it was funny getting that job, kind of my resume was that I owned a record label and the CFO of the company just thought I was sort of a, a smart dude. And uh, I took a job. I was the first person they hired to do like any sort of marketing. And all I really did was like kind of get their e-business together a little bit and develop some Amazon sales stuff that was actually really like uh, profitable for the company. But what was really cool about it for me was to be involved in the actual like sale of albums in a physical way in an in-person way to learn you know really how much impact the retailer has on selling records and and you know how much impact like a personal recommendation can have and you know the way record stores worked 20 years ago to how they work now and the similarities and differences like you know it was it was really i think beneficial for me to get some insight to that side of it and it's it's been beneficial with my dealings with distributors to this day to have some retail experience <laughs> because I think people often, they get like, oh, everything's just online now. I made, Someone made a comment this week to me like, well, well when you're running an e-business like you basically are, and I'm like, well, I'm really not running an e-business. Like 30, 30 plus percent of the business is still brick and mortar. So like there's definitely a whole huge part of it that happens in real life. And there's real life 
sort of caveats that apply to that that don't apply to other parts of it. And I, it was a it was a really interesting job for me. Absolutely, I think it's uh, I think people that are able to get that experience that do have the desire to like you know stay working with music. It's like I couldn't recommend a job any higher that was like that because it's like, yeah, the years that I worked at, at Bionic down here in Southern California were so formative of just, like you said, understanding the retail landscape, uh, understanding how records are sold. I can't count how many times, granted, your the Rasputin store was much larger than the store that I worked at, but I, I can't count how many times I was able to sell a hardcore kid an At The Gate CD. And this was, you know, the time where those worlds were a little, too, a little more divided. But it was like, you know, whatever. A hardcore punk kid walks in, and you put the At the Gate Slaughter of the Soul record on. Within thirty seconds, they're gonna be like, "Hey, what's this playing uh, on the speaker?" And then there you go, you sold them a record. It's like having that experience is so valuable. Right. It's it's funny. Well, I mean, that's how records before that before that you could just like press play and hear a song on your phone that's like how i found out about records like was going to record stores and i would like you know be in the punk section and be like i would just sort of i would literally browse them i would i would go in and not necessarily know what i was gonna buy i, I you know what i mean like i'd be like oh it's time to get like some new music and i would t- totally be open to what might find me you know what i yeah, mean Yeah, what's gonna jump out for sure I would sometimes buy records on album art. I mean, like store recommendations, uh, thank you, thank yous in the credits, like what my favorite bands, who, who they thanked. I would look at, you know, it was, it was definitely a, a different, a little different experience uh, in the, in the brick and mortar world. And I, kids ask me one of like the most common questions I get is like, Oh, I want to, I want to work for a record label or I want to do this or I want to be a booking agent or a manager. How, how do I start? And I think one of the easiest ways to get your foot in the door to get any sort of taste is to work, you know, any retail music you can, you could get in, you know, a lot of people in the punk rock community want to thumb their nose at hot topic, but there's nothing wrong with working there. And it's, they support a ton of independent artists and labels and, in any retail experience that you can get that's like that, where uh, anything that's local to you, where you can get an idea of what, of how, like, you know, things sort of work and the mechanics of making a record and selling a record is, is valuable, whether it's working at Hot Topic or your local indie record store or, uh, you know, uh, college radio, local promoter, whatever, whatever it might be, it's kind of like, you know, don't don't get it in your head that you have to move to Los Angeles or New York City to make it like, you know, you, there's plenty of options and uh, music is happening everywhere. Find what's happening close to you and and get your, you know, give it a try and see if it's for you. Mm-hmm, for sure. Like you mentioned earlier before, you you played bands, you played in Creative Void and you did that for for a couple of years. And obviously you kind of filled the role of the business guy in the band. You were the one booking the shows. Um, and it's obviously been well documented that, you know, this that's what you did for the band. Did that, was that a, a learned trait or was that one of those things like you wanted to put that on your back because you just enjoyed that experience? I think I've always been a mediocre musician. I felt like my best way I could contribute to the band was organizationally. And I think I can be bossy also. One thing I had, it took me, you know, my early bands, I like wanted to be the singer. And then I realized like, okay, let's, 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 we got to live on earth here in reality and be like, okay, you're, you're an okay bass player at best. 
So maybe, you know, why don't you learn another skill, a different way to contribute? And I think that's uh, a good point to make because just there's so many other parts to to music outside of being like a, an amazing, gifted, talented musician, ways you can contribute uh, to the to the community at large that aren't making music. And I, I think I sort of like self-taught myself how to do a lot of things. Like all my first tours, I, I mean, the first tour I went on, just like, this is pre GPS. Like I was, I was taking map quests and I would just staple the directions from one venue to the next. And they're like, Hey, can we try to find a McDonald's? Nope. It, not unless it's on the way we can't cause we don't know how to get there. Uh, otherwise. And, you know, it was just like, you know, booking shows through MySpace and email and, and uh, calling promoters and sort of trying to connect with local bands to see if they would book you a show uh, in their city in exchange for you booking one for them. And, you know, it's stuff like that sort of, uh, it was, it was honestly, that part of it was almost as almost, if not more fun than being in the band itself for me, but not, not certainly not everyone feels that way. (laughs) Right. For sure. So, Hey, I've got to interrupt the show for a minute to talk to you about Squarespace and not just because I have to, but because I want to, this is a product I love. I'm sure most of you experience this. You know, your parents, they may not be technologically savvy. So a while back, my stepfather, he owns a vet clinic and he was like, hey, you know stuff about computers. Can you help me get a website? And I was like, you know what? I can. And in less than 20 minutes, I had a fully functional website for him for the business. Showed it to him. He was like, wow, when did you learn how to code? And I was like, you know, just in my spare time and all that sort of stuff. I played it off because that's how amazing this website is. You don't need to have any coding experience necessary. You can dive right in and it looks professionally designed and no one will know unless you tell people that Squarespace helped you out. It's trusted by millions of people and businesses around the world and it'll cost you $8 a month, which is ridiculous. That's like nothing comparatively speaking to the empire that you are going to be building after you launch the website. You get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. That's incredible. So here, seriously, drop listening to this podcast. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required. They're not requiring that. That means you can play around, see if it's for you, but I promise it will be. So go to squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for the service, because you'll be blown away by all this amazing stuff that they offer you, please use the code WORDS, W-O-R-D-S, to get 10% off your first purchase. Seriously, there's no reason for you to not do something cool with your time and your life. Don't be a fan. <laughs> Anyways, Squarespace, build it beautiful. We have a very incredible sponsor on the show this week, Creative Live. I have firsthand experience in seeing how these people conduct their courses and do their business, and it is awesome. It's so high quality, it blows my mind. So I'll break it down for you like this. Is they take the luminaries within certain fields of creative arts, so songwriting, engineering, mixing, mastering, taught by people like Tommy from Between the Buried and Me, members of Converge, Periphery, Dillinger Escape Plan. So they take these people, really, really focus on the intimate details of why they are successful at what they do, and then give you the tools on how to do this. It isn't just like some broad stroke class where it's like, oh yeah, like I'm not going to show you the mixing board that I'm using. It's like, no, here's the knob. I'm turning it. Here's the setting I use. It is very, very specific information that is incredibly valuable. 
And it's not just like some crappy YouTube tutorial. This is like high production value, multi-cameras, and so much good information. So visit creativelive.com backslash audio to see some free previews and to learn about these courses. Because like I said, it's awesome stuff. So if you're interested in any of those fields, which if you're listening to this show, you probably are, go to creativelive.com backslash audio, check out some samples, and then ultimately buy a few courses because they are such good stuff. I've bought a few and I do not regret them for one second. So thank you very much, Creative Live. And now here is my discussion with Jake. You de- I definitely think there's a valuable lesson that you learn when you do that, obviously, at such a young age, because you you do have to balance that line of like not being the sort of dictator of your band, you know, where it's like, hey, guys, I'm the, de- I'm the default businessman, so I'm going to go ahead and make these decisions for us and really not check in with anybody or whatever, just because I know that this is the best move. And then sometimes the the drummer who may not care about anything is like, Hey, wait a minute. I need to make some decisions because, like, someone told him something somewhere, you know? <laughs> right. To- totally. And it, it, I think bands are really a great focus group for sort of like uh, group activity, as far or what what's the word I'm looking for? Like, you know, we did group work in high school and stuff like that. It's like there's sort of the, the, the social politics of being in a band and like making decisions together and having to work as a team are can be so intense because there's art and opinion involved like really everything is opinion every move you make quote unquote move whether it's to play a show or to not play a show or to tour or not tour to to write a song this way or that way or whatever it might be it's all subjective so uh it's hyper subjective and you know it's there uh it takes it takes a certain kind of person to work in in a group like that i think having been in several failed bands has depends on your definition of failed, but several bands that like, you know, were just DIY bands that were, you know, never had a lot of success where we were constantly grinding was really super crucial for me starting a label. Cause I just had so much perspective on what it meant to tour DIY, like the finances, how much money the bands actually needed when they needed help. Uh, you know, and, and also just like a level of empathy for a musician that's on tour, like eating cheeseburgers every night uh, and what what that's like. So it, it was and it still is like I think we're still very much a label that's developing very small bands from, you know, to garage bands to, you know, bands that can can sell out clubs and they are, everybody kind of starts in the same place. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, you, that, that actually leads into a question I was going to ask a little bit later, but because I know that uh, I, I myself have, have struggled with this at certain, certain times where here is your own personal music taste, Jake. And obviously that it defines you and that defines, you know, certain releases that you've done with the label. And it's not to say that, uh, everything that you, uh, release, um, you like the same because obviously there are certain things where it's just like, oh yeah, this is more like my personal taste versus what uh, I, I know could be a good move for the label. But then I also, I, I do like it. It's just not, it maybe isn't. It's not my number totally, one. Totally. It's not, a, not apparently in your wheelhouse. Have you had to kind of struggle with that in your own head where it's like, okay, here are these bands that I, I love and I put their records out and like no one cares from a sales perspective. So therefore, I need to make the business decision to not 
continue to work with the band. Uh, tell me your evolution on that, because I know it's a, it's a big struggle for a lot of people that I don't think it's re- readily discussed. I think a lot of the times when something isn't connecting, it sort of works itself out like uh, a really, I mean, I'll use a personal example, uh, a band that I think that we've, that we worked with that hasn't connected as much as I thought it would have is the American scene. I think the band's incredible. I was also very close to the members of the band on a personal level that made it more difficult. And, um, you know, it just got to a point financially on, on everybody's sides, the band side, my side, that like, it just didn't make sense for them to be a full-time band anymore. And that was super difficult. And it definitely has put a strain on our, my personal relationship with some of the people in the band. And it was, difficult thing for me that I a hundred percent lost sleep over. It's like somebody that you view as like one of your best friends, somebody that you spend a lot of time with. And all of a sudden you're, you're on the outs over stuff that in the long run really isn't that big of a deal, a little bit of money or a little, uh, a touring opportunity or like this or, or, or a disagreement over business things. And it's, it's totally difficult. I think some of the times it works itself out uh, more easily and the band's just sort of like, okay, this isn't working out. We're going to move on and do something else. And other times it can get more personal like that where it's difficult. And I've had, I think I have a little clearer uh, picture of now because I have some experience, but you know, when I was first sort of starting the label, I was just like, all right, I got one band going. I'm just going to shoot bullets and hopefully they land where they're supposed to land and they're, everything's going to connect and we're going to be this great big, huge label. And that's just not the case. Like some things connect that you would have never thought connected. I've had one, a, a couple of those where I was just like, wow, I can't believe this has, is doing so well. And uh, some that, you know, that I thought for were can't miss shots and just no one cared on, on, a, on a sales level. So it's it, it could go both ways. And, and it is tough. I think when it really gets tough is when you have we as many bands as we do now, where we're I think we're at like 22 active bands on the roster, which just like, you know, I have me plus two full time people and several uh, contracted like freelance people that definitely, you know, make up to be probably another couple employees. So you can just call us, you know, a company of five or six. You know, I only have so much bandwidth. So for me. If I'm going to sign a new band, I have to take a look at can I service that band, you know, well and do a good job for them because I, uh, you know, a recording contract uh, is a big misconception is that it just obligates the bands to something. It also obligates me and I take my obligations to the bands very seriously and I try to provide everybody with a, a level of attention and service that there can be stoked about that like we're taking their art seriously and you know it's tough when you have to like thin out some things that you might want to not let go because it doesn't make sense totally I mean it's just you know it's part of the business that isn't fun sure did did you actually have to like run into that wall in your own head where it's like hey maybe what like I like doesn't necessarily sell so I need to think on on and when I say like, oh my gosh, I'm going to make a shit. I'm I mean, make- the, the older we get, absolutely. I mean, my, my label, I set out to be, you know, I started it when I was you know, six years ago and I had a very, my palette then was very different than it is now. Like if you would have told, I'm really into country music, which I would have, if you would have told me that 10 years ago, I would have laughed in your face. Like I hated it. And so 
uh, what I'm into now is it isn't even close to what I was into when I started the label. But I, I would definitely say that I've kind of stuck to um, if I don't at least get get it. I have I've passed on several bands that are very successful right now that I've been like, oh, passed on that one because I just didn't get it. I was like, I don't think this is very good. Like, I just don't get it. And now it, it, and they've been super financially successful. And, and it, it isn't because I think I'm better than it. It's just like I don't feel right necessarily um, signing myself up to work for a project that I don't believe in. And that doesn't mean that I think that every every record that released that we release is my favorite record. It's just there has to be something about it to me that I get that stands out to me. Why is this good? Why is this great? Why will people care? And it could be something as simple as like lyrically or musically, or they have this great personality or they're amazing live. What 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 is like, I got to be able to understand it. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be my favorite record, but I have to get it. You know what I mean? And a lot of it, a lot of times I've taken some chances on things and that, that I didn't, that weren't my favorite when they started and I, they've grown on me. I'm sure everybody has records that, that grow on them. And, you know, it's, it's, I think every record's different, but for me, I haven't really gone like, well, this is what's really selling right now. Because I think when you get into that, you're like, it's a slippery slope before you just, you're firing blanks. Like, well, maybe, you know, throwing, throwing darts at the wall, hoping they hit. Like, I think it's like, it's a better business model as a record label to sign things that you believe in. Obviously there's some, like there's some question in your mind on whether how it's going to do and what you should spend on it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it all comes back to like, do I get what this band is trying to do? Do I get what makes it different from every other band? And do I think there's, do I think there's an audience for this that I, that I can take it to. Right, right. Yeah, it's like the, you're you're looking at the entire uh, playing field as opposed to just being like, well, I like it. I'm going to put it out. Done. Right. right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm 32 years old. And when I was 17, all I listened to was like uh, melodic punk rock for which all intents and purposes is basically just pop punk now, 90s skate punk. But, you know, at this point, do I necessarily identify with every pop punk record that we put out? No. But does that mean I can't totally understand like what what, the art and, you know, work and heart and sweat and tears and everything that these musicians put into these records and understand their audience. I was their audience for my, I still am, you know, for my whole life. So I think on that side of it, you know, the older you get, the less you're going to identify with music that's, created by a generation you're not necessarily a part of. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. It's a good point. You've mentioned in previous interviews before, obviously, like your your mother is your accountant. Like what is, what is um, when did you actually like bring her on officially or was she always just kind of like on the side? Always. Okay. I mean, my mom loaned me the money to start the label. She's loaned me. I mean, when we were going into the second story so far record, I had all of her credit cards maxed out. Um, you know, we were not a rich family by any means, very, very middle class. Um, she definitely gambled uh, on the the project a little bit. And, and and I always kept it reasonable. The the original amount of money I borrowed from her wasn't like, I mean, it wasn't even enough to buy a brand new car these days, but it was, it was still substantial. And she, she, you know, she said it before a story I've told a bunch of times is like, you know, 
story so far did <laughs> warp tour a couple of years ago or maybe the first year they did it, they played main stage in Pomona. It was right after their second LP had come out and the band was exploding. And I had my mom come out to the show and she stood on stage and she like whispered in my ear. She's like, the crowd's going wild. And uh, we were walking out and I, I told her, Hey mom, this is like right as the credit cards were all maxed out. We're talking, you know, 50, 60 grand in credit card debt, really trying to make this thing go in the right way. And I was like, hey, mom, you know, at least it worked out. And she was like, it would have been okay if it didn't. Like, she was just sort of in the corner. She's been the day-to-day accountant from the jump. She filed my taxes for the first few years. Um, She keeps complaining because there's so many more transactions now than there used to be that I might might have to give Carol a raise here pretty soon. (laughs) But she's been in the mix since the beginning. Like, all all the bands that were, you know, that everybody – you know, that knows the people that like pure noise records, any band that like you think of that's quintessential from like the first four or five years have all stayed at my mom's house, you know, stories so far state champs, uh, you know, handguns, all of those like original bands, we all stayed at my mom's house. So it's like, you know, definitely a kind of a family vibe. And it, I think it goes beyond that. Like, you know, Brad Wiseman's the story so far as booking agent. And he and I have very much come up together sort of side by side. And we have definitely fight and bicker like siblings sometimes, but it's just because we care about what we're doing. And, you know, we've both been working with the story so far since the band was playing in garages. The first time story so far went overseas. I played in the band. So that's just kind of been in like the vibe of the label from the get, which I think, the bigger it gets and, and, you know, the more people involved, obviously you lose a little bit of that, but it's still sort of, I think the foundation for everything. It's like anybody that's working with pure noise knows me, or at least there's one guy or one gal in the band that can get a hold of me. You know what I mean? And like, Hey, we've got this issue. Somebody call Jake. Like, it's not like a, this faceless entity, you know what I mean? Where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to pass this off to, you know, obviously there, there's, there's things that I can workload that I can share. But at the end of the day, if there's a major issue or someone really needs to get something done, it's not like a some faceless corporation. It's like, OK, I'm going to call Jake. He's the guy. Hopefully he'll fix it. Right. The, the, the buck will stop there. Because, yeah, the reason that I, I bring up your mom, I mean, obviously it sounds like um, there is uh, obviously such a level of trust with you as as her uh, own flesh and blood. Um, but what what do you think it is beyond just the fact that she obviously loves you as a son and wanted to support you kind of unconditionally? Because like most parents would be like, oh, yeah, like I'll give you, you know, a $10,000 loan for this thing. But then as it keeps rolling to be like, hey, mom. Uh, to, to reinvest. Well, I think honestly what it was is that my mom has always since I was a kid that I think my parents taught me a lot about money when I was a kid and they would always loan me money for like within reason whether it was 20 bucks or a hundred bucks or whatever, but I always had to pay, pay it back. And so that was the thing. Like my whole life I've been able to borrow money from my parents, which is a huge luxury that not everyone has. But the thing was, it wasn't like they didn't expect it to come back. Like if I borrowed 1500 bucks to like put a deposit on an apartment, I was paying them 200 bucks a month for the next seven months, you know, to pay it off. You know what I mean? And I made such a point to pay her back that, uh, it was, it was, a 
I, I don't think it was too difficult for her. And because she was the accountant, she was full aware of exactly how much money was coming in every That's month. True. So she could see if she was she had a chance to get it back or right. not. She's, she's um, like, hey, uh, if I see this head in a different direction, you best understand that I'm going to go ahead and take this money. I'm going to recoup, recoup right, my she, investment. Uh, you know, the only time it was ever scary was going into that record. Because um, the funny thing was is that I really – I think I paid her back after the third year. Like I was like, Oh, I've got this little bit of, there's usually some extra money floating around around Christmas time. Obviously everyone has like Christmas sales and stuff like that. And I was like, Oh sweet. I'm going to pay this debt off. Cause I really like, I'm not as good as paying things off chipping away. I really like to just like get to like pay off an entire debt and then focus on another one. So I got overzealous and paid her all off at the same time. And then three months later I was in for 50 grand. So it was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to need some more. And we kept like cash advancing on these credit cards. And, um, you know, it was it was like there's been a couple points, actually, uh, where we've had cash flow issues. Like I, I paid that back and then I had to I had to borrow more again after that a couple of years ago or maybe a, a year ago or so. Um, really only in like the last 18 months have we really been coming to like a like, you know, this is getting into nerd business talk, but like a place where we're not cash strapped and, you know, starting a business from scratch, you really learn. I never set out to be a business person. I thought I was going to be a high school teacher. Like you really learn how the rich get richer because it takes so much money. You know, it takes, it takes five grand to make a thousand dollars. And, you know, to get your hands on that is super difficult. And, and if it doesn't go right the first time, it's even tougher to get get the money the second time around. So it's it's been a been definitely a, a like trial by fire exercise. So we've sort of been fortunate that our our we've had certainly had plenty of losses, uh, but our wins have been you know greater than greater than the losses. Right. Um, when did you yourself? Uh, I was going to hit on three more things, then I was going to let you go. But when did you you yourself kind of noticed? that uh like we were referencing earlier that either legitimacy or the fact that people like took what you did seriously um whether or not it doesn't have to be directly attached to sales it can just be directly attached to oh wow like like this person returned my email or whatever um you know do you have any sort of anecdotal stories in your own head that were like oh yeah like that's that's when i felt like people thought of pure noise as as a real thing well i mean i think definitely is like we had some bands that could sell out clubs. That was really exciting. When our band started to do their first headline tours that people were coming out to and excited about, I think that was like the obvious first indicator. It happens less often now, but it happened, you know, a lot for a while where I would get a chance to like meet somebody I really looked up to. Or when I first started, uh, you know, developing a closer relationship with Kevin Lyman, I was really excited because I was, you know, I was a kid that went to Warp Tour and I was super into it. And I was like, man, I would have never what I always wanted to do was own a record label. Some kids wanted to, you know, be pro baseball players. I wanted to own a record label. And so, the, you know, stuff like that. I remember I went out to lunch with Brett Gierowitz, the, you know, of Bad Religion and Epitaph Records. And that was only maybe a year ago. And I was so stoked. Like, I mean, I idolized that label as a kid and he you know they've 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 redefined uh success in like independent music community so you know to 
to, to be able to go out to lunch with somebody like that, just sort of like talk about talk shop, so to speak. It, it still happens all the time. Like li- little things pop up. I'm like, wow. It's so it's, you know, you got to kind of count, be, be thankful for what you got. And it, it's, I think it's cool that I still get to be excited about stuff like that. And it's, you know, it's not always like, I would, I'm more excited about going out to lunch with Brett Gearwitz than I would be about going out to lunch with like, I don't know, some George Clooney or some famous actor, you know what I right, mean? Right. Like, yeah. There, there's definitely a different, uh, a different level of excitement for that. It'd be like, Oh, that's, that's cool. Right. As opposed to like, Oh dude, I'm super nervous about this. I don't know. Like, <laughs> Oh, I was legit nervous. I remember I was driving my mother's car into LA and I was like, what's this going to be like? And it was just like, we we're just hanging out and I'm looking at like, you know, there's offspring smash record on the wall. That's one of the biggest selling indie records of all time. Maybe the biggest, um, and I was just like, this is so sick. <laughs> I was just so excited by it. So, I mean, it's like, you know, to be on like, a, uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't say, wouldn't go as far to say peer level with them, but like on a more contemporary level with them is, you know, to be able to have conversations with people who have been around a long time and things, see things change and also be able to give them insight as sort of like, the younger generation of like industry people, so to speak in, in the punk rock world, I think is, is cool too, because, you know, I was having a conversation with Buddy Nielsen of Sets of Fail recently, and he and I, are, we're all about the same age in our early thirties. And I think uh, we're sort of seeing sort of culture around music change. And I think we're young enough to like, be like, Oh, kids are, you know, and I say kids loosely, like you know, young adults, are a little different now than, than we were when we were kids and to not expect the same things of them just because it used to be a certain way doesn't mean it's going to continue to be a certain way. And a lot of the things that the sort of uh, community at large is demanding now, uh, some things are changing for the better and things are more accessible and it's easier to talk about issues. And, you know, I think it's important to recognize that and to not just like brush it away. It's like th- this is like it. you can't be – as you get older and more established, it's really important not to be bitter, I guess, is the only word I can think to apply to. It's supposed to be like, okay, this is different. This is this is why it's different, and and there's merit to that. You know what I mean? And it's kind of – well, I'm in a cool spot now because I'm old enough to be taken seriously but not too old to be completely disconnected because, you know, at some point you hit that threshold where you're like 45 and you're in your – you're like you're just in – a different land, you know, culturally speaking, than, you know, the the sort of tastemakers that make up a, a music community that is basically revolves between the ages of 15 and 23. Like you were t- mentioning, you know, the, the desire to like, you know, be a boss and be a business owner, like some, you know, obviously a business owner is exciting, but then, you know, when you want, when you start a record label, you're not like, Oh man, I can't wait to like have a bunch of employees. I can tell what to do. Is there, is there a certain, because you've deliberately kept the label very tight as far as the people that you work with and you're not over hiring. Cause obviously you see that happen with many indie labels where they have a staff of 10 people all of a sudden, and then it's like, it evaporates. Is there a desire to kind of keep it at the level that it's at depending on the workload? Or is it one of those things you, you would like to grow into a level of, you know, hopeless or fearless or, or epitaph like you were mentioning earlier? I think some of those labels and maybe, and maybe they know something I don't. Honestly, I, I had this conversation with someone recently uh, about some of the other larger staff labels that are 
in the same world as us. And it, it almost makes me insecure at times. Like, oh man, maybe I need all these people. And then there's the other side of me that's like, what are all those people doing there? So it's like, you know, I've never had the experience of a large staff. So that doesn't jump off the page at me. That said, I think uh, we will definitely add one to three people in the next 18 months. Probably two is probably the real magic number. You know, I'd really like someone to be like our head of digital but I'm getting to the, we're getting more now. Like, you know, the first person I hired was this kid, Cahill, who was, uh, you know, he's not a kid. He's in his mid twenties that, uh, was like the, the main DIY hardcore promoter in Sacramento. He did all the shows at branch street. Like he's been around a long time and he doesn't have any music industry experience. He used to work for Disney and was like a marketing guy. And we're at a spot now where it would be really good for us to hire somebody who, has worked for a distributor or something like that to get like, cause so much of my knowledge is self-taught and I'm constantly learning from the people that, that are more in sort of like the, in the, into the machine of it all and less in the artist sort of side of things. And it's important to, to learn things from them because it helps you provide opportunities for, for your bands who are just trying to make great records. So for us, I think we're at that spot where we could really use um, one or two people that have some experience that I don't, you know. I think the best thing I could do is to hire people that are smarter than me. So I think we'll definitely add some people on. Um, to sort of add to your question, I hate being a boss. I don't think I'm very good at it. I think I'm, I think I'm really good at being like a self-starter and working for myself and doing my own thing. It's like it's. I've been trying to press upon myself to like – have a more, uh, you know, communal work environment, make sure everybody in the office is in the know. I have a tendency because I did the label myself for so long to just like, be like, what do you mean? You don't know so-and-so's going on tour next month. Of course right. they are. Like, I knew that. How come you didn't? Why have you done this thing? I'm like, well, you never asked me to do that. And I'm like, well, that's a really good point. I never asked you to do it. Can you do it now? <laughs> so sorry to, sorry to spring this on you. That thing that I should have told you about a month ago, I need you to do that. I was thinking about it this whole time. I just never told right, you. Right. At every point of, of doing this, there's, and that's one of the things that's really rewarding about the job for me is that there's always something new to learn. Like, okay, I kind of learned, I know a little bit about how to sign a band. I know a little bit about how to, develop a band okay now i gotta learn how to be like somebody's boss and to navigate the waters especially so often in our field that you become friends with the people that you work with the difference between being somebody's friend and being someone's boss and the nuances there there's like a whole level of you know interpersonal politics that comes in that's difficult and not fun and a huge part of the job and you know it so it's it's there's, there's always something new and, you know, there's always, and there's usually, there's almost always someone out there that knows more about it than you do. So yeah, I think it's, it's cool to kind of, <laughs> even if, even if I feel really good about how one skill set's coming together, there's another one that could use some work. Sure. Sure. And th this just occurred to me, and this will be the, the, the final question I have for you, because uh, if I'm putting myself in your shoes, I would definitely, um, you were talking, we were talking about Brett Goretz and the lunch and stuff like that. Uh, was there a very deliberate fashion choice you made? Like when, did you wear a band shirt? Is it one of those things where you're like, all right, this is the sort of statement that I'm making. Um, where, where did you land at that? You know, I've gone almost exclusively white tea or black tea. 
in in my old age. I feel like I went casual, but like not too suit-ish. Maybe I wore a collared shirt. I was definitely nervous. Right, right. Well, I think that's a hard thing in our – it's kind of a – an interesting question because like people refer to like music industry people so often as suits and like you would never wear a full-blown suit to like a punk rock event but at the same time you're like well, I don't I don't know if I really want to wear like a pair of torn up vans either what what is the dress code here like what is expected of right. me or do I wear do I wear my vans without the holes in them like obvious do I wear my, my dress vans or do I wear my leather shoes or yeah, I don't know. It's it that that's that's kind of a funny question. Yeah, no, I I mean the reason I mention it is because I I do think um, there is one of these. Uh, th- there's something that people just don't generally talk about. Like you know whatever you see your favorite band play live, the one of the guys in the band is wearing a T-shirt of a band you've never heard of. It's going to prompt you to listen to that band, and I think that. Uh, I would say more often than not, people are very deliberate in their choices of that. I mean to apply my own life to it. Like you see a band like story so far who definitely has had some more mainstream success, but really considers themselves like a, to be like a beacon punk rock band. And so you'll see them wearing, they're going to wear their coolest shirts. I mean, they're going to wear their nail shirt or their, or their, uh, you know, brand new or the weaker thans or the, you know, the bands that, that they like that you wouldn't think they like, like, you know, American football or Owen or bands, you yeah. know, and, and there it's definitely intentional. It's like, Hey, this is the stuff that we're, you know, that we're really into and they want to put that vibe out there. You know what I mean? I think, and, and you know, or, or Parker's wearing a, a harm's way t-shirt. It's like, you know, I think it's cool. And I also kind of think it's a, a cool way. Like, especially if you're a band that has a big platform, like they, they do to expose, you know, more mainstream kids to stuff they would have never would have never heard otherwise. I used to talk to rot, uh, rotting out sometimes about this, and all of our bands really. Whether you think your band's cooler or less cool or whatever it is, like nobody starts off with good tastes. You shouldn't judge any what anybody likes. Everybody's got to hear good music sooner or later. Might as well be yours. You know what I mean? Like you could be the band that takes a kid from liking you know pop radio to hardcore and punk Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so what some band has to be the gateway totally it's it's at at the point when you put art into the world it's not your choice anymore you've given it to everybody so when like you like you allude to when you are no matter what your perception is of your own art you've given it to people and then therefore if you are that that band that is the gateway band it's like that's not your choice you can't be like oh i don't know man like i'm not that cool it's like well it's not your choice like it's it's away from you dude the the audience decides yeah no absolutely well jake i really appreciate you hanging out i uh, i hope this was uh, was painless for you and better than uh 98 of the interviews that you do i truly enjoyed it so there you go there was jake there was pure noise i like that conversation just because it was, uh, Jake is a very straightforward dude, tells it like it is. I just really enjoy his perspective on the way that not only he conducts his business, but the business in general goes. Because if you don't change as the owner of something, that thing's going to go away. And sometimes people are very stubborn and they, they stick to what they believe is right, which is fine because uh, that should be the barometer in which you run your own business. But if you're not willing to at least hear other people's opinions, and take those things into consideration. Sometimes you get passed by. Thank you very much to Jake. 
And the producer, as you heard at the top of the show, is Tom Richfield, always and forever attached to the show. Visit the show's website, 100wordspodcast.com. Email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. And I'd like to give a special shout out. I was record shopping today and someone was like, hey, you're Ray. I listen to your show on a weekly basis. So thank you very much. And I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your record shopping experience because I was like telling you to move out of the way. And anyways, so thank you very much. For those of you that support the show and, and talk to me and we've created a relationship, I really appreciate it. And if you haven't, then like I said, email the show. I digress. Please, until next week, be safe, everybody. Everybody.